You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Back in 2019, Disney Studios entered the streaming video arena with their very own Disney+. Plus. One of the linchpin shows to help launch their streaming service was The Mandalorian. And needless to say, it was a huge hit with both critics and viewers. Even for people who don't care much about the Star Wars universe, I mean, who doesn't love Baby Yoda, huh? Now, two other fan-favorite characters from the show are Quill, a wise and peaceful Ugnaught, and Frog Lady, an amphibious creature trying to save her eggs. While two different actors provided the voices for these characters, they are both physicalized and performed by one actor, Misty Rosas. She actually has a long history of performing suit characters like these. But she is also a dancer, singer, gymnast, stunt woman, and voiceover artist. And while her resume is impressive, it's all the more amazing that she's done each of these with about half of her hearing gone. I was born with hearing loss in my right ear, and then I've lost hearing in my left ear. I should have always worn earpieces in my right ear because it is what it is, but I've caused myself some nerve damage over the years in my left ear. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and each week I talk with fellow artists as we explore the realities of what it really means to make it in the performing arts. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, and there you can sign up for the monthly newsletter, as well as support this podcast financially. Learn about all that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com or click on the link in the show notes. Now, I have been a fan of The Mandalorian since it debuted. And when I found out that one actor had played two wonderful characters on the show, I was really impressed with her work. That's when I looked up Misty Rosas and discovered her long resume of other character work. Then come to find out she's a recording artist as well, having released albums and music videos and even opened for the classic 80s band Air Supply. But it was when I read her personal story that I truly became a fan of Misty. So we will certainly be talking about The Mandalorian and other movies and shows she's been a part of. But it is her personal and medical challenges which galvanized her character and made her not only the actor but also the person that she is today. I have to admit that there have been a handful of interviews in the five seasons of this podcast where I was a mixture of nervous and excited to talk to a guest. My time with Misty was certainly one of those times. But as you'll hear in part one of our conversation, she was a warm and open heart with so much wisdom to share from the lessons she's learned in her life and career. And I am so grateful she came on this podcast to share it with you and me. Welcome, Misty, to the podcast. It is truly an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I am very honored and excited to be here. <laughs> now, with the kind of performing that you have done throughout your career, from dancing and singing to the costume character suit performance and stunt work that you've done, 
I just find it all the more impressive considering the hearing loss that you have managed since birth. Now, what was it that actually caused this hearing loss? I was actually born uh, with the hearing loss that I have in my right ear. Basically, it's just one of the three inner ear bones didn't sync up with the rest. So, and I actually, they did go in to try to correct that, um, but they had to abort surgery because my facial nerve was a little bit too close. And if they hit that, um, there was, you know, the fear of half of my face uh, being paralyzed. So it was just like, nah, just, you know, it'll be what it is and I will handle it. And it was a it was a partial hearing, right? It wasn't full. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty uh, significant. It's a sixty five percent loss um, in my right ear. Yeah, yeah, which is very significant. And then yes. and then the left ear, I guess, as part of compensation or whatever, it started to to lose yeah. as well. It's um, nerve damage over time uh, with all of the suit work that I do. You wear an earpiece in your ear. It's just uh, perhaps sometimes it was too loud, and uh, I don't have I any control of being able to turn that volume down. So, oh, I um, see. yeah, so I have a 45% loss in my left ear and 65 in my right ear. So how has this hearing loss affected the kind of work that you do, or, or rather, I guess the adjustments that you've had to make to compensate for it? I would say, obviously, with recording as a music artist, that is, it's a challenge, but my love and passion for music and singing and recording is worth all of it. So I just, I train with my vocal coach every single week. Um, And, you know, over the years, he's helped me to refine how I find pitch center, which, you know, I mean, and I'm always, it's just obviously because of my ears, I'm going to struggle with that uh, because I just, I don't even have, a full hundred percent of hearing almost. So, um, and then in the recording studio with my record producers, it's just, um, kind of like trial and error of, you know, how loud things should be or soft and how to, you know, wear my headphones and stuff. And I always just have to listen to a playback and I've gotten really quick to be able to hear where I'm pitchy because of training and, you know, so much training that it's getting a little bit easier, but um, it was pretty, it was rough at first, but it's one of those journeys that, you know, Ultimately, if you really, really love something, you're just, you know, giving up is not an option. You just navigate through it and find your way. Yeah, because you you started performing really young at the, the age of six. You you, you were dancing, at, yeah. which obviously requires you to hear the music, feel the beat. So was there from day one a, an effort to, to not let the hearing loss uh, affect you or hinder you in any way? It never did. You know, I mean, I could always hear uh, my music and stuff. Um, It's like kind of a little bit later. It's with the, you know, my music journey, which obviously I've been drawn to music since I was a little kid. Like my earliest memory is being, you know, about two or three years old. And my parents had this big, beautiful record player. And I would use my right ear to just like, I would just be right against the speaker and just kind of feeling the vibration and the music. It's just something that, you know, feeds my soul. (laughs) 
So <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the earliest pictures that my mom took of me was as I was just beginning to walk and stand on my own. I would go to the washing machine and just put my face up against it because the vibration, the sound yes. of that. I, I for whatever reason, because I, I not only heard obviously what the washing machine was doing, I then felt the vibration. So I think that that there's something within us from a young age that is just drawn to those kind of sounds and feelings that music can do for us. Yeah, vibration and connection. Um, you know, so you can feel it. You can feel it. Uh, felt it on stage, um, especially after you know the last time that you know I opened for Air Supply. They're my favorite band, and again, it was just like this connection. Um, I remember the first time that I discovered them. It was um, my family. We would always, you know go and watch a show in the evening together. And um, I wasn't really paying attention. My parents were watching like a music award show on TV and I had my back turns and I was playing with my stuffed animals, just, you know, being within the setting of my family. And um, I heard Russell's voice and it literally made me stop. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. voice is just like so beautiful and I like literally crawled right up to the TV and just was like consumed you know just like wow and it's a one of those heart moments where I didn't really realize it but it's like I want to do that too so and I got there you know oh it took a long time um but ultimately you know that's like been one of my biggest um for me personal successes is opening for them because I've been literally a lifelong fan and then the last time at the Rose I had three ear surgeries um three weeks and three days before the show um and it taught me a lot about having faith leading with love and trusting that everything is going to be okay. So at at this point, how many surgeries have you had regarding your hearing loss? I've had four. You know, I had one in this, in my right ear uh, that we aborted, uh, which was traumatic for so many reasons because you have so much hope that, oh my gosh, you know, I might be able to hear a little bit better to be able to hear like everybody else. And Also, like I have long brown hair and they had to shave um, about an inch or two along the sides (laughs) for a long time. Like it was really cool at first. And it was like, I had this like punk thing going, (laughs) but then my hair, you know, needed to grow out. (laughs) It was just like, really? And I did all that for nothing. (laughs) And then the other three ear surgeries again, that happened in one day, uh, which is, you know, it was a lot to handle. Uh, yeah. That was in my left ear. You know, there's that old saying that strength comes from adversity. Would you say that that has been the case for you? Absolutely. It just feels like, yeah, from even as a gymnast, like I was told that you're too tiny to be a gymnast, which again, I'm Simone Biles height. So I'm proud of that. <laughs> um, but that it has been a challenge. It's been a challenge as a dancer. Um, I remember coming up to LA and I had a plan, you know, I was, um, 
the moment, literally the day after I moved in up here, I was at the Edge Performing Arts Center and training about three hours every day in the different disciplines. And after years, like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go out there and, you know, audition for the dance um, agencies. And I did. And one after the other said, we love you, but you're too tiny. We love you, but you're too tiny. And so that was really like crushing to my heart. Um, I never thought that height would be such an issue. Like if you're really good at something, there's a place for you. Uh, And so I kind of lost, like I was broken and so sad um, for a while. And I just stopped dancing and went on to really kind of focus on stunt work. Yeah, what was that transition? Because obviously dancing is all about your body free-flowing, expressing a story, whereas stunt work tells a different kind of story, but it's obviously oh, much, gosh, much yeah. more physical. So what what was that transition? <laughs> this is all, you know, I mean, my whole life, all of these things have been swirling together. Um, as a gymnast, I, you know, I trained, I took my first gymnastics class when I was two and a half and I was immediately hooked. And I trained as a gymnast and competed all the way up till I was 16 and a half on the national team and all of that and dancing, you know, for the floor routines, especially at that time we had compulsory floor routines that were very, very much ballet. So we had ballet bar class, you know, obviously I was never like, professionally trained or technically trained as a dancer growing up, except for within the gymnastics training. And then at 18, when I went to college, I immediately enrolled in dance, the dance classes and um, auditioned for, to be a part of, you know, the dance performance at um, college. So it's always been there. Um, Stunts was an easy transition for me because of my gymnastics background. You know, I have air awareness. I know how to fall. Um, Yeah, I have um, that ability. So, um, yeah, it's always been there, too. (laughs) And it was actually stunt work that first brought you to the television world. That was actually your your first foray into that. But your first on-camera was with with Congo and Instinct in portraying the gorillas. Because of suit performance and knowing John Alexander and Peter Elliott and being taught by them how to do this type of performance and to learn how to work blind and to you know, handle the weight and the heat and the oxygen deprivation. John Alexander was asked by the Jim Henson Company and Disney to assemble artists to audition for the Country Bears movie. And so that was my introduction to the Jim Henson Company, which was first about uh, practical suit work and um, doing that movie. And then from there, with the Jim Henson Company, I shifted into their motion capture world with the Henson HDPS system. So Henson Digital Puppetry System and the motion capture world, So, which also brought me back to dancing. Henson Digital Puppetry Systems actually created a video that Misty was a part of, which gave a behind-the-scenes look at the work that they do. You can find a link to that video in the show notes. Well, here is one of their producers, Brett Nelson, talking about the goal of HDPS. We're taking the disciplines of more than 
50 years of the Jim Henson Company. Uh, puppeteers, suit performers, puppet fabricators, and electronic geniuses all working in concert to deliver a singular vision here in real time. Would you say that Mandalorian has just been another level of this suit performance? Like it took it far beyond where you've ever been? It was very similar to the Country Bears um, with being inside a character suit. Uh, my friend Michelin Sisti, you know, who's this brilliant performer. I mean, he's on Broadway. Um, and so he's a singer, dancer, actor, musician. And he was with working with the Jim Henson Company, too. So I was able to train with him uh, for the Country Bears. And he taught me this other technique as far as suit performance in these costumes where you're actually um, speaking dialogue and how to do that. And then it was like a 20-year gap until Mandalorian came along, really for suit performance, right? There was definitely a big break because after the Country Bears, uh, Brian Henson brought all of his artists and performers in for a meeting and had said, well, you know, we love doing practical builds and effects, but it was a time when that type of performance was shifting into the motion capture world. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh man, I just got here. And, um, you know, so I figured it's like, well, I guess that's it for me. <laughs> um, but he actually called me and Misha Michelin Sisti in for to do a test pilot for their Henson digital puppetry system, uh, which was a little uh, Muppet Babies pilot. Right, <laughs> he yeah. was baby Kermit and I was baby Gonzo. So, which is really fun. <laughs> how, how it, it must be interesting uh, portraying such, uh, such iconic characters. I mean, I mean, certainly uh, your, your work as the gorilla got really noticed and then, and then with, uh, with, with country bears and now playing uh, the Muppets and these recognizable yes. characters. Did it prepare you for, even though we had never seen these characters before in Mandalorian, did it kind of prepare you for taking on this very iconic world of Star Wars and a fan base that will either love it or hate it kind of thing? Yes. All of this work uh, from my very first job in the film industry with Congo, all of it, you know, the suit performance work, the motion capture work. Yeah. Um, we worked on Sid the Science Kid for, you know, a few years. And I worked in tandem with puppeteer Drew Massey. Um, and so learning how to do that work and to blend and mesh with another artist, um, you know, in that volume, I obviously do all of the from head to toe I'm the body performer. I'm performing his body movement. And Drew is, you know, performing the voice and puppeteering his face. So um, I had a lot of training and time and experience working with people to fuse and, you know, come together into one character. So it's all been this journey to this point, as well as uh, struggles, you know, dancing and not dancing, going back to it because I love it. And it's part of my heart, the music journey. It's all like kind of streamlined into these characters that I play in Star Wars. And I came obviously to the Mandalorian with that, but it had been a while since I had been in a practical, 
you know, suit with the animatronic head and all of that. So it's like, oh, I, I remember this. <laughs> right. Now, certainly just the practical physical element of it is very different from, from acting. Mm. But, but, but as actors, you know, it's, it's us, it's our body. We move, we speak. We're kind of autonomous in that sense of portraying these characters. Whether, whereas when you're in these suits, you're dealing with someone else do, doing the voice, puppeteers controlling some of those finer animatronic things, mm-hmm. and then you're embodying the full character. And you have to, as you mm-hmm. said, you have to mesh all those elements together into a single performance. Does that help in some ways that, that you're not carrying the full weight of the, the character work on your shoulders? Or is it kind of hard to fall in line with what everyone else is doing? We've all of the puppeteers and I, like we've had the privilege of working together before. Um, so we know each other. And, um, and then when we knew it was Star Wars, like, oh man, you know, we got to work, let's work really, really hard. We got to focus and, you know, bring a game every day. And usually the first take or two <laughs> would be a little bit wonky and um, not fully synced up. So it just takes some time, you know, because there are so many moving parts with him and literally um, yes. a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, doing their thing. So, like, I was always, we, I would come in a little bit early and meet up with my team and we would talk about what scenes we were doing and ideas that I had. I never wanted to get stuck in a rut of like having to give them physical cues that just, I don't. I just want it to be organic and feel very natural. So oftentimes it's like, you'll just trust me, trust me. We'll feel it out. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, And we, you know, we did. So it was, I was really proud of him. (laughs) And in comparing Quill to Frog Lady, obviously the characters are different, but was the physicality, the performance itself, was it similar? Physically, Quill was much heavier, uh, but I could see. It was challenging because the moment they shut the mouth, there's no oxygen coming in. And after a while, you start to take in your CO2, which, you know, can get Mm, interesting. Um, Frog Lady wasn't quite as heavy, except for the pack. That was very heavy. And I was blind in my hero head for that character. So that was challenging. (laughs) Yes. So so how did they manage that? As you say, once the mouth closes, was there a certain amount of time, like you have 10 minutes and then you have to take a break? Or how did they balance that so that you don't overheat and lose oxygen in there? It was up to me. I know when I start to feel a little bit lightheaded or something. I would always, because I knew, you know, the volume of work we were trying to create was a lot. So, and I think too, that's why, you know, Legacy, I know them and they know me and they know my work ethic and they're like, you need to, you know, audition her because um, she knows what is coming, you know, what goes along with this work and it is not easy. Um, you know, you have to have a lot of patience. I remember Peter Elliott telling us there's the challenges of acting and then there's this part too. And a mantra that he told us and taught us was not now later, uh, where, you know, when everything hurts and you're tired and it's uncomfortable and all that, you have to tell yourself not now, later, you know, stay focused, stay in it. So, you know, things like that are very important when you're just uh, exhausted and you're like, okay, I'm done. I want it out, (laughs) you know, and we're in the middle of, you know, (laughs) shooting. So (laughs) that wouldn't go well. (laughs) 
Now, how did the the suit performance you did for Mandalorian, how did it compare with those guerrilla characters, for example, that you portrayed 20 years previously? Was technology different or, or was your own performance? Did you feel like you had grown? Oh, yeah. Especially with Congo. I had never been on a set uh, or taken an acting class. Fortunately, we had three months of training um, to learn to to move and to feel and breathe um, as a gorilla and also start to learn how to move in those suits. Like I remember putting everything on for the first time, especially with the animatronic head. Um, Most of the time you're blind in those heads. So it's like, I can't do this. I can't see. And so we had training sessions where uh, John Alexander would be with us and they'd put a blindfold and you just really had to learn to trust um, the people in your earpiece. Um, and then b- when blocking happens, learn how to, you know, count your steps at first, but then get so comfortable in your body that you can kind of feel it out if you, you know, are more in the scene and you've lost count of your steps. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that was uh, Congo. I loved it, but it was overwhelming um, just because it was brand new and I just, didn't know what I was doing yet. Instinct was, I was so grateful to get to come back because I got to improve my skill set. And I just felt like I, I knew (laughs) much better what I was doing and how all of the dynamics of what goes on on set and all of that, I just felt more comfortable. So I was super proud of that work. And I will say Wheel and Frog Lady, they're a combination of that, but also since you know the very beginning like I've definitely done more work as in training as an actor you know within a school with my friend Brad William Hinkey it was just like every week you know you're just learning the craft of acting so that's what is different this time and um, maturity and life experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I mean that that really does uh, us becoming a more just well-rounded person helps us, whether on camera or on stage. It definitely uh, definitely helps us. Both Misty and myself have had a good working relationship with the Disney company. Though my work has yet to rival The Mandalorian, we both got our start professionally at the Disney theme parks. For myself, it was Disney World in Orlando, where I got to perform in several of their stage shows, the first of which was as Victor the Gargoyle in Hunchback of Notre Dame. For Misty, it was Disneyland in California, where she would end up being one of the original cast members in Fantasmic, playing one of King Louis' dancing monkeys and a host of other characters. She would also go on to do stunt work and dancing for the Lion King Celebration Parade. Now, as any actor knows, there is a certain connection to a character once you put on the clothes or the costume of that character. In many ways, it helps solidify the work put into the rehearsals and is one of the last steps in fully realizing and connecting with the character. Having done a little bit of costume character work myself, is there ever a sense of when everything closes around you, is there almost a sense of serenity inside that costume? Yeah, um, a lot of the crew, especially when I was working as Queel, The moment I put everything on, I did have to go to a very like kind of quiet, still place because I needed to, you know, conserve 
every bit of energy um, that I had for working in those scenes. It was super, super, super heavy. So yeah, you just, you have to go, you have to be able to go into that peaceful place of just breathing. You know, it was a unique animatronic head because obviously my eyes are exposed, so I could see. But in Frog Lady, sometimes, you know, you just like needed moments where you could just sit and close your eyes because you can't see anybody or anything anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, you do. You have to conserve energy. I think I'll never forget. It's uh, Frog Lady's introduction. That scene was very challenging for me because obviously both Amy Sedaris and Pedro, they were mic'd. So they're calling action I was sitting back there and they had to take my air away which is basically uh, legacy has built you know they're out of little hair dryers but they take the heating mechanism out and you know you get to shove that in the mouth and you just get air and it gives you oxygen and stay a little bit cool so they had to take that away from me <laughs> and you know the opening of the scene is the two of them for quite a while, just having their chat before I'm even revealed. So it's just like, I would just, I call it just dropping down, um, just sitting, listening to, you know, waiting for my cue and just breathing slow and steady until it's my time to go. <laughs> Besides enjoying the Mandalorian show itself, there is also a behind the scenes look at the making of the show called Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian. And for season two, they talk about the Frog Lady and what went into bringing that character to life. In the following clip, you will hear from Peyton Reed, who is the director of episode two in the second season, as well as Hal Hickel, animation supervisor, and finally, the Mandalorian himself, Pedro Pascal. All of them describing what Misty brings to the role of Frog Lady. When you read this thing, it's like, how are we going to create sort of a dimensional character out of this frog lady? And Misty brings this performance level to this character that's unbelievable. The way that she embodied the creature, just as she did with Quill, is just remarkably sensitive. And immediately you love this character. Misty is a superstar. It's absolutely heartbreaking the way that she creates a compelling little frog lady. The physical language that she's able to demonstrate that kind of performance is exactly what makes things like that work in the world of Star Wars. You had mentioned Quill, and there was a, a social media post of you wearing a t-shirt with the phrase, I have spoken, which is, for lack of a better term, that was his catchphrase yeah. in, in the show. <laughs> what has that phrase meant to you personally? It is probably one of the most significant and important connections. Um, it, at a time when I was doing a lot of stunt work, I decided <laughs> to take a break and go to yoga teacher training. Um, it was at a time when I was, you know, my body was pretty beat up from 18 years of gymnastics and then costume work and stunts. And uh, I discovered yoga right after we wrapped up the Country Bears movie. And I was just hurting. And fortunately, my puppeteer, Alice Dinian, um, she's like, do you, have you ever practiced yoga? And uh, I was like, no. And she's like, well, it would probably be good for your body. So we went to a class and I, again, was immediately hooked. 
Uh, so then a few years later, I found Bikram yoga through one of the physical therapists that I was working with. And he's like, the amount of scar tissue and the damage you've done to your body, you have to be in that heated room in order to break that down and to really heal your body. And um, within a month of that practice, it's just like, wow, this really does work. And so teaching yoga is part of my karma work of giving back to people and then in hopes of um, helping them to really see themselves too in that mirror and to go after their dreams. And so I've been teaching Bikram yoga since 2006 and Quill is very much like his wisdom, his quietude, his precision in what he says and why. Because I, I try to be as precise like that in the hot room with my students because I know there is a lot going on mentally, physically, and emotionally for them. So being that calm, steady support of, you know, just breathe, uh, be still, just keep come back to your body. I have spoken. That's where that comes from for me. So it's really special because <laughs> my whole family's like, what are you doing? And it's like, I have to do this. <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't know why other than I really want to help people. So just trust me. You know, even then I was like, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes either. Um, so I learned how to trust myself and trust that journey that sometimes when you do something selfless, because it is my karma job. <laughs> it comes back to you in the most spectacular ways. Yeah, because it sounds like that certainly you're you're helping others as you said kind of find their own center emotionally, spiritually, creatively. It sounds like that it's really meant a lot to you personally. Yeah, it helped me too with confidence. Um I'm pretty shy. Um <laughs> like, you know, I'll do training and fine and fine and fine except for, you know, the first time you we had to stand up and do the dialogue for the first posture in front of 350 people. It was, I was okay. Cause it's like, just stay with the, the yoga, stay with the, you know, the words, the dialogue. But then on my first day of teaching, I'm like in my car on the phone with my mom crying, going, I don't want to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. And she's like, calm down. <laughs> she's like, why, why'd you do that? Why'd you train for nine, nine weeks? you know, all day, every day. It's like, because I know the yoga works and I just want to help people like tears and crying. Um, and you know, it was just, it's really intense for me because I usually wear, <laughs> it's crazy, but it's a thing. Um, my tall shoes, when I go out, those inches matter. And in the yoga room, you're <laughs> barefoot. So I'm itty bitty. And it's like, nobody is going to take me seriously. And I have to be in here with all of these, you know, tall adult people. So um, again, love and trusting the why of what I was doing uh, really helped. And then when I opened my mouth and just tried to stay centered too for me and learning how to command that space and just lead people, it helped me with courage. Yeah. It's interesting you brought up size and it makes me think back to what that dance instructor said, you know, you're, you're just too small. I'm sorry, yeah. you can't do this. But now your height is what has enabled you to portray these characters on screen. <laughs> yeah. So actually your height has been almost a blessing to you yeah. in that way. It's felt in moments like a lot. Of, I mean, even Simone Biles said it, I just want to be taller. Um, and as a dancer with the tears and 
getting rejected so many times. I wish that I was just tall enough to do this thing that I love. But then if I was that, then this would have never happened for me. So it's just like, just be mindful of sometimes um, what you wish for, but also to trust your journey. And, you know, all of Mm -hmm. it tends to manifest and create ultimately where you're going. Yeah. It almost shows us that we don't have limitations. We may have things that guide us to certain paths, but they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not limiting us. They're merely, in some ways, helping us down a certain path that we might not have gone down otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's you know one of the bigger lessons that I've learned. It may feel like sometimes um, the things that I've loved, uh, there's been these physical obstacles, but really the only obstacles are the ones that you create. So instead of choosing to agree with those obstacles, choose, you know, the joy in what you're doing. Um, I love to go to dance class just because like, it just makes me happy. Um, And I, you know, I'll dance all night, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and you can feel it. It's something that you can feel when you really love something, because you just do it, you know, when I'm training with my vocal coach, just to sing a song, to sing it, sometimes I'll get goosebumps. And I think it's just a little reminder from the universe or wherever of you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And part of accepting that we are where we're supposed to be and staying present in the moment comes from us also accepting and honoring the past and where we came from. So before we finish this episode, which is coming out at the midway point of Hispanic Heritage Month, Misty wanted to share a bit of her own heritage and the important lesson she learned from her father. Yeah, my heritage is Italian, Mexican, and Native American. So I haven't done Ancestry yet, but I do want to do that because I want to know really really where my roots are right right to dig into that yeah yeah you know my heritage and I'm proud of it I'm proud of where I come from and I come from the working class you know um not handed anything my dad and I remember that so it's like I honor his memory by the time he was six he had to work in the farms with his family you know um And it's just, it wasn't an easy life. So everything that he gave to me, it's just like uh, every opportunity I can, I want to honor his memory of um, you got to work hard, you know, you got to earn it. Which is a a classic example of that. Keep saying yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. If if you have to do it, you got to do it. Say yes. You got to do it. Just figure it out. You'll figure it out along the way. Thank you so much for joining me and Misty for part one of our conversation. You can actually watch the full interview on YouTube. That's right, Why I'll Never Make It has a YouTube channel, and there's quite a few episodes on there. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. Otherwise, just stay right here on your podcast app for part two with Misty Rosas. We'll talk more about how she deals with the negative voice, both from others and within herself. And you'll also get a preview of Misty's latest single, Thank You. 
Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Publicity provided by Imagine PR Group. The song clip you heard, All Out of Love, was recorded by Air Supply and written by Graham Russell and Clive Davis for Arista Records. Other incidental music is by Vortex. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time with Misty Rosas as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.